You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! Right, easy, Geraldo. So I'm joined today by Dr. Harry Benshoff, and he is a faculty member in the Department of Media Arts at the University of North Texas. And uh, you are also the author of a seminal queer horror academic text called Monsters in the Closet. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to speak with me. I think one of the things that's most important for me is that people understand that there's a legacy to queer horror. So I'm actually very interested to hear how did you get your start and I guess what attracted you to queer horror in the beginning? Sure. Well, I was attracted to horror films as a child, very, very early on. And I think that, um, you know, before I even knew what sexuality was, I was kind of sensing or feeling kind of a kinship with these kind of outsider figures that, you know, are the classical sort of monsters. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, so we had famous monsters of Filmland, right? And so they were resurrecting or recirculating all of the sort of universal horror films and those figures, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, etc., um, as well as covering the new horror films that were coming out in the 60s and 70s as well. So, you know, I ended up doing film history, but, you know, it started as a kid watching monster movies <laughs> and very specifically, again, feeling some sort of like, I like the monsters, you know, the, I, I often sort of say as well, it's not called the adventures of Jonathan Harker and the land of the vampires. <laughs> it's called right. Dracula. So, you know, they're always the most interesting figures in the books and stories and films. And just this notion that you have this special power that sets you apart and, you know, you can sort of run amok and uh, take your pleasures and exact your revenge against so-called, quote unquote, normal society. Um, that was always a very sort of appealing fantasy for me as a kid. So how did that then transform into an academic pursuit? How did you end up coming to write Monsters in the Closet? Well, it was a strange sort of path. I, um, I was a pre-med English major in the 80s. Uh, I come from an all-medical doctor family, and so that was the expectation. <laughs> Even though I loved literature. We didn't have a film program where I went to um, my undergraduate program, but I studied um, Gothic literature, you know, and I wrote a senior project on... Um, 19th century American Gothic literature. So that was always my interest. I actually did go to medical school for a few years before I realized that I could not spend the rest of my life doing these sorts of things with these sorts of people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that there aren't great people in the medical field. But at that time, it was also, this was the mid eighties. I was going to a medical school that was very homophobic, very sexist in the middle of the AIDS crisis. And it was, it was just, this sort of horrible place to be for a young gay man. And I decided, you know, I can't, I can't stand this. I don't want to do this. So what do I love? I love film. And I applied to graduate programs, NYU, USC, and UCLA. Got into USC and I never looked back. <laughs> and the very first paper I wrote there as a master's student was on how to make a monster. The 1950s uh, little queer teenage horror film that is on the cover of my book. And that, you know, 
first paper eventually became the dissertation. So I was very lucky in that the dissertation I wrote was then published <laughs> as Monsters in the Closet. Yeah, and you know, it, it, at the time there was still a lot of, there was a burgeoning interest in queer theory and sort of LGBT studies, but there was also, it was also sort of still kind of an emergent discourse, if you will. Um, a lot of people, I used to do some little talks and people would be like, oh, you're just reading so too much into things that it's like- Oh yes, yeah, <laughs> that old adage. It's like, well, that's what I do. That's my job. <laughs> yep. so, um, but, you know, as as you've talked about or we've talked about, the field of studies around LGBT horror is is thriving, as is the production of LGBT horror. So it's been kind of gratifying that my work from 25 years ago 25, yeah, 25 years ago, <laughs> is still um, still sort of a touchstone for a lot of folks. And in more recent years, you know, chapters have been excerpted in other kinds of anthologies. So it's become an approach to thinking about horror that it's pretty common now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And one of the things that I would really love people to take away from this is not just the idea that queer horror has been around for a very long time, but also you know, the study of queer horror. This is not a new phenomenon. It's not something that has emerged just in the, you know, new age of listicles on popular sites and that kind of stuff. Not that that isn't how a lot of people are now accessing that, but I think it's really important to have an understanding that this work has been done since, you know, the mid-90s and so on. Well, you know, I consider myself a historian, a film historian first and foremost. And so my book, begins with a sort of prehistory. Let's talk about Mary Shelley. Let's talk about Bram Stoker. Let's talk about, you know, some of these figures who created the Gothic literature. And many of them would have been considered queer right. by today's usage of the term. My colleague David Skull found and published um, a letter that Bram Stoker had written to um, Walt Whitman, which in my opinion, was sort of the smoking gun of like, oh my God, Walt Whitman, you understand me. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, there was very little understanding or awareness of, you know, queer sexualities in those earlier eras. But this kind of gothic and science fiction literature has always been a place where you could sort of explore these kind of non-normative identities and, and sexualities. So yeah, so that was that was very interesting. And the book itself then is sort of divided up into historical periods. There's a chapter on classical Hollywood horror films, a chapter on the World War II uh, films at RKO and Universal, chapter on the 50s, uh, then one on the 60s, 70s, and then the final chapter was on the 80s. Things like, well, Freddy's Revenge, <laughs> which has, you know, again, I was one of the first people who was even talking about that film way back when, and now it's got an entire documentary and cottage yep. <laughs> industry around it. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I've written some other work and more sort of 20th century uh, figures, uh, David Dakota and right. uh, Victor Salva. Right. Um, that was published in another anthology. But yeah, I mean, the field has just exploded. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, streaming 
we have these new technologies for new platforms for new media and so it goes from the listicles and the the chat rooms to you know amazon and fx you know all of those kinds of things that are looking for product right right this is a way to differentiate themselves and sort of hey let's do some more stuff around lgbt which of course has exploded in its own right 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 and I think, you know, queer horror just sort of goes along with the explosion of LGBT representation and yeah. generally. Right. Yeah. So I'm I'm interested because one of the things that I've discovered working in the field is that people have very different definitions of what they categorize or are willing to accept as queer horror. So some people will say, oh, if it's got a queer character in it, then I can consider it queer. Or some people say, no, it needs to be a leading character. Like it has to be the protagonist. It can't be the secondary best friend who only has one scene. But some people also consider, you know, yeah, like David Dakota, Victor Sala, uh, you know, the the rising group of folks like Chris Landon and Adam Robitel and right, uh, right. Jeff Reddick and that kind of stuff, like behind the scenes casting crew can contribute to the queer horror. So I'm curious, how do you define it or do you do you place parameters around it? Well, in the book, I, I did define that there's different ways and you've just enumerated a lot of them. You know, there's characters, there's authorship, there's reception. Right. You know, if, if a film speaks to queer audiences, then there's a sense that that's a queer film. Mm-hmm. Right. Wizard of Oz, I guess, being the most right. famous yeah. point. So I don't know that it's that important in my mind to sort of, you know, draw lines. Again, I'm always interested in sort of seeing how things change and evolve. And of course, you don't have to have any kind of queer people involved in a text to have it say or be something about queer, right. uh, you know, and I think especially in, in earlier decades, you know, they were tapping into tropes, which would today we would consider more homophobic, right? So the trans psycho killer or lesbian vampires, whatever. And most of those were made by straight men, <laughs> so, but, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean then that they can't be kind of reappropriated or taken and uh, enjoyed in a different way, sort of, you know, by queer audiences, which again, historically we've done. Yeah, absolutely. I love the idea that as queers, we have always had to kind of carve out our own spaces and sometimes that means reclaiming problematic texts or basically just barging into spaces where we maybe weren't initially wanted or accepted and saying like, well, this is now ours. Like, hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2 is now ours and you don't get to say otherwise. Too bad for you. Well, yeah. I mean, again, it's just been fascinating how the terrain has changed. You know, I'm pushing 60, so I see this all the time. But, you know, something like Freddy's Revenge, which had all this kind of homophobic vitriol dumped on it in the 80s and 90s, is now embraced, mm-hmm. you know, by queer audiences and, que- you know, queer folks seeing this as like a, a positive representation, right. you know, and that, that in itself is always sort of a reductive thing when people want to talk about, is it a positive image or it's a negative image? Because that sort of begs the question, well, positive for whom? Right. And in what ways? So, you know, a, a queer 
monster could be a negative image, but if you enjoy watching the queer monster run amok, <laughs> then it could be a positive image for you, right? I think that's actually worth unpacking a little bit because really, even in your introduction, you said, oh, I was attracted to the monster. I felt, you know, some kind of kinship to it. And I feel like as queer people, we hear that all the time, right? We're associating ourselves with these things that are meant to be the villains of the piece. And yet they're far more interesting. They're far more complicated. Often they're far more sexual. So yeah, I'm intrigued by this idea, but I am wondering your book goes up until like the late 80s, early 90s. And I'm wondering like, how have you seen the dialogue around representation change? Like you did mention trans representation, the changing depiction of like, oh, the only lesbians we ever see are always in hammer horror lesbian films. And do you think that there's any taboo subjects that are just off the table? Like, could we get a dress to kill or a psycho or a sleepaway camp nowadays? Or is that time passed? I think anything's possible, quite frankly, um, you know, and there's all sorts of people, again, with this new kind of technological environment we're in, anybody can make a movie. So right. I'm sure some kind of homophobic, transphobic person can make another queer psycho killer movie if they want to. You know, what has changed is that there's much more pushback. I guess it was about 10 years ago, there was this thing called Ticked Off Trannies with Knives. Yes. Uh, you know that one. And, you know, and regardless of what you think of the film, what's interesting to me is that there was pushback against it. You know, you shouldn't be using that term. You shouldn't be, you know, this is recycling negative images. But I mean, it, it is fascinating. I mean, I know people who are trying to rehabilitate <laughs> Sleepaway Camp, <laughs> mm -hmm. which, you know, in my book is pretty homophobic, pretty transphobic, <laughs> but you know, but that's sort of what film scholars do too. It's like, oh, you think that's a bad object? Let me tell you why it's not. <laughs> yeah, it does feel almost a little bit queer to say that too, right? Where you're like, oh, you think that this is a problem? Well, actually I uphold this as a piece of camp trash and I'm gonna celebrate it. Like I'm removing its power to do damage by saying, no, it's actually a part of the culture now. Yeah, I, I, you know, and I, again, I think that's just how texts don't exist in voids. You know, they created in one period and then still watched in other periods. And so, of course, the meanings we're going to bring to them as spectators are going to be different, whether we're watching in the 1980s or whether we're watching in 2020. Yeah. And I don't think that's unique to queer horror, right? That's just kind of how we approach older texts and how we investigate yeah. the medium. Yeah, I mean, it's a really kind of, again, fascinating moment. I'm realizing that my students now are Gen Z, whatever you want to call them. And they have grown up in this new social media environment where everything is up to date. Everything is now. Yeah. And so there's this sense that, you know, I don't want to sound like the cranky old man, but on one level, the, the history is getting lost or the history is getting ignored. And I've had to sort of confront this in some of my classes. It's like, well, do we really want to watch this stuff that has quote unquote negative images in right. it? I still think it's important to understand and contextualize the past. And film and television is a great way to do that. But as we move, 
further and further into the future. Now I'm, now I'm going to sound like Criswell. <laughs> future events such as these will affect you in the future. There's almost a sense that everything that Hollywood produces is not up to snuff. <laughs> and, and in many ways, this is true, right? Yeah. But does that mean we're just going to ignore what's coming out of the film industry? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe for some people, the answer is yes. Right. But I still think there's a lot of interesting stuff being done. It's just so diffuse now. It's so dispersed yeah. across all of these different platforms. It's a little harder to find it, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think if there's one thing to celebrate about the diffusion of media across so many different channels is that we are seeing some kind of rarefied gems popping back up, like, you know, all of a sudden Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker is widely available on Blu-ray and it looks great. You don't have to watch the crappy YouTube where it's like half the time you can't even see what's happening because the colors are so off. But I'm intrigued by this idea that people do have a sense of like history being lost. Cause I've encountered that as well. When we talk about queer horror, a lot of the time people want to talk about relatively contemporary films. And I'm talking about films from like the two thousands or the aughts and on. And I think one of the things that I really enjoy about your book is that it really does a great job of unpacking, you know, for better and worse, films that people may not be familiar with from, you know, the 20s and the 30s, like films that have, to a certain extent, been lost into the ether because people just don't think about them as prevalently. And I'm wondering, I don't know, like, is, is this an issue? Is this something that we need to work with? I'm, I'm thinking of how queer history in general tends to get lost uh with each successive generation right because i think to a certain extent we take things for granted because we don't have to fight for them quite as hard yeah yeah again it's, i'm notoriously bad at predicting the future so i don't know uh, necessarily how to answer that i do think you know there will always be a sector of people who are interested in these historical Im images whether it's queer horror or LGBT images, you know, which again would be considered passe. And I think the proper way to do it is to do the contextualization. So um, Turner Classic Movies, for example, has been really good about, you know, trying to sort of present stuff within kind of a historical context and talk about race, talk about class, talk about gender and sexuality. And you know, talk about how you know some of these images might be considered very problematic from our current perspectives, but you know they were still important images at the time. You know, I think it, I think it's in my book, or maybe it's in one of my other ones, talking about the killing of Sister George, which is a famous kind of lesbian film from the late '60s. Again, made by straight men. <laughs> And, you know, in my reading of the film, it's pretty damn homophobic and monstrous. I mean, I, I do talk a little bit about it in, in Monsters in the Closet because, you know, there's a lesbian seduction which almost plays out like a vampire seduction. Yeah. But yet you found folks, you know, women of the period were like, oh, my God, that film gave me so much. I loved that film because it, it talked about. <laughs> yeah. So even though they're not, good images by today's standards, they still had a lot of historical impact right. like, yeah. on, on audiences in those periods. 
But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think television has been, I think, really, really important in terms of American Horror Story and in terms of True Blood and in terms of some of these other Hannibal shows like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I see more queer horror now probably being done in those venues. You know, Hollywood's not going to touch it. (laughs) Right. I think they figured out that they can monetize it, right? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's an audience for this. Let's absolutely give Ryan Murphy as much money as he can put into his swimming pool. Well, you know, again, but those are not playing at the Cineplex, right? right? And so it's a different kind of thing. Yeah, and that goes back to how the industry is structured now. And Hollywood is a global industry. And so there's plenty of places around the globe that, don't want LGBT content. So so we get these kind of pathetic, you know, oh, there's an LGBT character in Avengers. You know, blink and you'll miss them. (laughs) That that is not the representation I am wanting or needing, good sirs. (laughs) But, you know, so it's a complicated kind of thing. But to go back to what we were talking about, the fact that there is so much diffusion and dispersion um, and that anybody can make movies, then that's really positive. As I'm sure you know, there's no shortage of people making queer horror shorts and queer horror zines and queer horror whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm interested because you did bring up the idea of global peace because something that gets lost in the conversation is that this is not just a uniquely North American enterprise anymore, right? Like we're seeing queer horror coming out of some really interesting foreign markets. I'm wondering, do you see a difference in the depiction or the kinds of stories that we're seeing from like North Americans versus Europeans and so on? Well, I think you're going to have to give me a little help here because I guilty, you know, my work tends to be very sort of stuck (laughs) in North America. (laughs) So what are some of the films or um, industries that you're talking about that you see? So I I think, you know, people tend to glom on to I guess, recent examples like Knife Plus Heart from France or Rift from Iceland. That one. The Handmaiden from South Korea. They're interesting pieces, if only because they're often far more frank with their sexuality or they're more willing to be dark because I think they are aimed at different kinds of markets. And North Americans are notoriously, we don't like unhappy endings you know, give us lots of violence, but try to keep the sex a little bit more limited. We're still a little bit afraid of that, a little puritanical. So I found it interesting to see how some of the more risque kind of button pushing content is coming from outside of North America. But I also don't know if that's an explicitly queer horror piece or if that's just... I think there is an overlap with the so-called extremity, you know, films films of the extreme or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and that really started to happen in the 90s with a lot of releases in North America of like Asian. Um, and there was even a, a, a brand called Asia Extreme. Right? Yes, there was. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and scholars have really kind of torn that apart in terms of, you know, how that, you know, corresponds to Western fantasies about the Oriental other, right? You know, mm-hmm. Um But then it also, you know, there's definitely a strand in Europe around the the sort of French, a lot of the French films might throw um, Human Centipede in there, (laughs) into that category. Um, 
more recently, what was it? Was it Raw? Yep. And so, you know, you're absolutely right that there are films made in other national contexts that are more willing to push the borders, push the boundaries. And I think that, I think there's an overlap maybe between that pushing borders, boundaries in terms of violence and content also right. overlaps with pushing those borders and boundaries with LGBT content, probably. Mm -hmm. So I guess then coming back to your book, this idea that there's a goldmine of potentially undiscovered old queer horror that we should be more mindful of. What are some of the key texts that maybe people won't be as familiar with that you would highlight from different times of the book? Sure. Well, I always say the touchstone for the classical period is Bride of Frankenstein. Yes. You know, which I still think is just a wonderful, wonderful film. And I still teach it every time I teach a class called Gender and Sexuality in the Horror Film. But, you know, the work of James Whale very clearly has a, you know, his gay sensibility, his sort of campy gay sensibility stamped all over it. You know, you've got queer performers, you've got queer content, you've got, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's just, and, and there's another really good example of, you know, in many ways, the Frankenstein monster is the most sympathetic figure in the film, right? Mm -hmm. Being beleaguered by all the quote unquote normal people. But I also just love um, Ernest Thesiger as Dr. Pretorius in that film. He is just sort of this campy, bitchy queen that, <laughs> that I just find endlessly, endlessly entertaining. Just to mention both another film that Whale and Thesiger made together was um, The Old Dark House. Yes, yes. Also a lot of fun. You know, I talked a little bit about some of the Val Luton films in the 40s sort of starting to do some more what we would today call queer connotation or sort of, you know, lesbian or gay sort of hints in those films. They're just marvelously made little atmospheric horror films as well. 50s gives us, of course, Ed Wood's work, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, and I'm a big fan of the, the so-called teenage horror films. Yeah. <laughs> like Teenage Frankenstein, Teenage Werewolf, How to Make a Monster. I did not know it at the time, but the guy who was producing all those films was himself a gay man. Oh, really? Okay. And, and you, can see, you can see this kind of thing, even when he went to England then and was making films with Michael Goff, there's still this kind of very queer you know, older mad scientist and the young male assistant, right. <laughs> which we're going to do experiments on kind of thing going on in those films. Um, so they're a lot of fun. I, I, well, that's sort of bringing us more up to date. I think everybody knows the Lost Boys and uh, right. <laughs> Fright Night and these kinds of things as well. And of course, Rocky Horror. But there's another great example of of how, you know, when that film came out, it was 20th Century Fox, it was, you know, considered beyond the pale, mm -hmm. and it bombed, right? You know, this was, this, and, and now it's like on television for 24 hours every... <laughs> yeah, and, and kids watch it and love it as a yeah, Halloween yeah. And, you know, and they do a whole episode of Glee about it or, oh, you know, yeah. whatever. So it's like, yeah, but, you know, I also sort of say, just to go back to that historical things, it's not like Rocky Horror Picture Show came out of nowhere, right? <laughs> right? It was all these earlier films that had these kind of queer contexts and queer subtexts in them that allowed somebody like Richard O'Brien to come along and say, you know what? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> let's out these figures in a very kind of fun, campy way. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay, so final question then, if you haven't already talked about it, what is your personal favorite queer horror text? Well, I've mentioned a bunch of them in passing just now. I, I guess I'll mention one more, The Abominable Dr. Fibes. Uh, oh, okay. Right? I was obsessed with Vincent Price and Vincent Price movies as a child. And these two films about this character, Dr. Fibes, are revenge fantasies. In many ways, they're kind of precursors to Saw, the Saw oh, franchise. Okay. <laughs> well, because Dr. Fibes creates these sort of very unique and artistic and colorful ways to murder people. Right. right? Um, and so there's a little bit of that. But they're beautifully made. They're British films by Robert Fust. And they have this kind of, you know, deliberately queer, campy kind of sensibility behind them, hmm. where it's kind of, it, they're right on the edge of this sort of, it's a horror film, but it's also wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Right. You know, we know that this is because, you know, in the tropes themselves, I mean, even the title, The Abominable Dr. Fives is kind of campy, right? So dramatic. <laughs> But it's also referring back to films like the horrible Dr. Hitchcock, right? Um, right. So there, you know, there there is this whole kind of history of this kind of mad scientist thing that the the Fives films tap into, of course, and also Vincent Price's entire legacy, because there's there's nods in the Fives films to House of Wax, yeah. And, you know, many of many of his earlier films as well. So um, I don't know. It's just a lot of fun, and again, everybody's different, you know. My first boyfriend hated them because he called, <laughs> he called them curdled camp because it, it was nasty. It was too nasty. Oh. And, and I also, I recently had a, a younger colleague. I said something about the films. I said, yeah, but you're supposed to like Dr. Fives. And he, and he said, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, okay, to each his own. Um, right. But, you know, that was my childhood fantasy that I would, live in a giant mansion and uh, with elegant clothing and art and, you know, a clockwork orchestra. <laughs> sounds fantastic. That sounds and, like a great retirement plan, right? Yeah, and, and murder my enemies in, in <laughs> very interesting and unique ways. <laughs> but yeah, those are, those are, that was a big, big, big film for me. Nice. Okay. Well, I don't want to keep you any longer, but I want to say this has been an absolute pleasure. And I'm so glad that I was able to chat with you because, A, I, I would just love to have more people discovering your work and appreciating the history of queer horror, but also just you're fantastically entertaining to talk to. <laughs> oh, well, I guess I'd get, I better give a plug then. Um, you know, again, as part of this explosion of queer horror, over the last year, I've been doing um, Zoom chats with Brian Fuller's folks and Brian Fuller himself. And I don't know if I'm, I'm allowed to even talk about it, but they're trying to put together uh, something. I'm not sure what it'll end up being called, Queer for Fear or whatever, but um, along the lines of horror noir. Oh, so wow. okay. There was this recent documentary yes. right, about yeah. race and horror. And so um, it's a good indication, again, that there is now a market for a documentary on this particular subject. So mm -hmm. hopefully that'll be something that's coming in the near future as well. 
Yeah, I, I think a lot of people are actively looking forward to that. It's just a question of like, when do we finally get to see it? <laughs> well, hopefully things are getting back to normal. Not there we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, Professor Benshoff, thanks again so much for your time. And hopefully we can reconnect in the future and have some more chats. Thank you.